For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active. And I pray this morning that because you know every single heart in the room, that you would speak just the truth that we need to hear to make us more into your image, to make us more like you, and to allow us to reflect you more in every day. We love you. Thank you that you loved us first. Amen. If you want a title, Persecution, Transformation, Mission, and that is where we are going. Here's where we've been the last two, three weeks, if you count Easter. We've gone over kind of the history of the Galatian church. Anthony told us there's no other gospel, uh, and he got that from Paul. And the next time we cover family worship, kids, it will be the last sermon in Galatians. So that is at the end of July. So you get a little bit of the beginning, and you get a little touch at the end. And you don't have to be in here for another three months. So if this is painful for you, I apologize, but it's not every week, so you can thank God uh, for that. And Miss Beth and all the kids' volunteers to help disciple you in better ways than I probably will this morning. So here's the background. Paul is coming in hot. And for you kids, uh, you can imagine Paul is kind of like your parents if, if, or when, more likely, uh, you have not been doing what you're supposed to be doing, and it's one of those days where they've asked you again and again and again and again and again, like whatever that thing is supposed to be done or not be done, and you again and again and again and again and again have not followed that instruction, and they are a little bit upset. Any of you kids know that experience? Any, anybody? I see parents smiling and kids nodding. Yeah, this happens in life. That's kind of what's going on in Galatians is that Paul had planted these churches, rooted them in Jesus, and all of a sudden they are not doing and believing and following after Christ as they were told. He gives the story in context in chapter 1 and 2 and kind of that background. So over the next three weeks for us, we're going through a bit of narrative history as Paul gives the background to this church being planted, his own conversion, and then their life together. And every letter that Paul writes that's in the Bible is unique. And here, the main issue that he's dealing with is opponents and people that were making broad accusations against him and his ministry in attempting to add to the gospel. 
It, it, and it's not just some tips and tricks that weren't helpful. It's that they are, in fact, preaching a different gospel, a different faith than what Paul had laid in, as the foundation. And subsequently, that, that's a problem because it's taking people off of center uh, where they could find the, the source and spring of life, who is Jesus. So again, imagine this. You, Paul, he comes in, he preaches, there's change, there's transformation, there's new communities of the faith that are being formed, and shortly after that, other people come in. And they preach a completely different gospel and lead all of these people astray and tempt them towards another teaching, another faith, uh, by tweaking and changing and misdirecting these folks. Again, that's why Paul is upset and why he goes into his defense of who he is and how God called him. And so he explains the origin story in defense against the two main accusations. Here's the things that these people were saying against Paul. Number one, he invented it. The, the faith that they were given, he invented it, he created it, he made it up. And the second accusation is, well, if he didn't do that, then he just took it from the apostles. He's just copying after them. But here's the truth that he says. It's not man's gospel, but it was revealed to Paul through Jesus. And the apostles didn't give it to him, and he didn't consult with them for quite some time. You see this beginning in verse 11 and 12, where he says, I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, meaning it's not created by humans. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's giving them the background of Christ appearing to him and unveiling this gospel that he taught to them. And these disciples, they knew about Paul, the early apostles and the early church in the first century, they knew about Paul, but it, it was kind of bad news. Any of you kids know the background of Paul, who was Saul? Did you get to that in kids' ministry yet? He was not a great guy. Uh, and he says so much in verse 13 and 14. He says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous I was for the traditions of my fathers. So you can imagine Paul, who was Saul, who was a straight-A student, and he was the number one enemy against a fledgling movement of Christians known as the Way. Paul, at his time, was doing everything he could to destroy these people and this faith. Not only that, but he was doing all he could to make sure that, that slackers and slouchers in Judaism were keeping the faith. So he had kind of a twofold target here. Destroy the way, and for all those lazy, slacking, sloucher people practicing Judaism, make sure they're really robust in their beliefs, practices, and following after Judaism the best they possibly you get a glimpse of Saul holding coats and approving the first recorded martyr's death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And what you see in Acts chapter 7 is, is Stephen is being killed for the faith that he proclaimed in Jesus. He prays for Saul and for all who are 
approving and, and acting upon his death. He, he says to the Lord, don't hold this against them. He, he's echoing his own savior, Jesus, that said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These early Christians, though there was so much pressure against them, followed after a Lord and Savior who taught them and teaches us to pray for our enemies. And Saul, Saul at the moment, is, is seemingly unaffected by those prayers. And he goes on a rampage you can read about in Acts chapter 8. But in God's time and in God's way, those prayers were answered. You see, the persecution of the church matched with the prayers of God's people resulted in transformation happening. Inside and outside of the church, when there's persecution coupled with prayer, there's inevitably a transformation that takes place both within God's people and out in the world. This is something that we today, in our current context, have a bit of a struggle following along with because we have been, in some ways, both blessed and cursed with the comfort that we've enjoyed. And there's all sorts of theories and speculation about how that's going to go in the future with the, the waves and tides of culture changing. Sure, we shall see. But what you see throughout human history and the history of the church is that God's people, in various times and ways and places, have experienced persecution. Again, this is not something that has been very familiar to us in our own context in our lifetime. Again, we can talk later about the theories of whether or not that's going to increase in America in the days and weeks and months and years to come. But persecution has always been a part of the history of the church. And what persecution does is it brings clarity around what matters most. And what you see is when there's persecution, there's often, not always, but often growth in God's people, both inside and outside. The most recent case study of that is what you've seen in China in the last 70, 80 years. If you don't know the history, there's a, a missionary movement in the late 18 and early 1900s to evangelize the, the people of China with the good news of Jesus, bringing the Bibles and all that. And then in 1953, the last Christian missionaries from overseas or other countries were uh, expelled. Christian missionaries no longer allowed in China. And at that time, in a very large country with a very large population, there were 700,000 Christians in China, it's believed, in 1950-53. That's less than 1% of the population. So we sit down, we do the math, we go, this is really bad news. You take out all the Christian missionaries and the church will fail, right? We might think. You take out the witnesses and, and the people uh, proliferating the gospel in the country, bad news. Well, quite the opposite has happened. Even as persecution had increased, there has been a 150 times uh, growth in that. The five decades that followed, there's now one to 200 million Christians within China, roughly 10%-ish of the population most estimates have. And so, Jesus is still on his throne, and the church marches on. That's not something that you pray, God, would you persecute us? No, like, 
That doesn't seem to, to make sense. But what you see is when the church is under pressure, it clarifies what matters most. And when God's people are clarified on what matters most, what do they end up being about? The word of God, prayer, and community. It's like you, you, you get out all of the fluff and the junk and the drama, and it becomes about communing with Jesus and witnessing out in the world. And you can see there's so many, look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can see Operation World, which is a really good resource that gives you kind of an outline of every uh, country, what the major religions and faith groups are, and how you can pray for those countries. There's a connection between persecution and transformation when Christ is center. And I think this is perhaps a little mini lesson for us going into this unknown future and strange new world that we find ourselves in, that rather than us resenting our enemies and opponents of the Christian faith, how about if nothing else, we simply love them by praying for them? That's what Jesus teaches us. And so every time you click the news or you get that itch where you go, I don't like what's happening in the world. I get it. But rather than resentment and anger and frustration and shaking your fist, just pray. Just pray for whoever those people might be for you. Friends, families, coworkers, whatever political party you don't like, just pray. And as you do that, God transforms your own heart and in this wonderful, mysterious way, God works in and through the prayers of his people. We see that here with the Apostle Paul. And I'm not going to pretend as though this is like a uh, scientific formula when you get threats and opposition, that that ends up being the most fertile soil for the gospel. I, I don't know exactly how that all works, but what we see in Paul's story and in the most beautiful selection, in my opinion, of this section of Scripture, it seems to be how God works. That God sets apart people, he calls them, he saves them, and he sends them out in and through the prayers of his people. Verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, But when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to, into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What you have in these verses is a lot of dense, beautiful theology. Doctrine of election and predestination. You see the calling of God. Uh, others, the order of salvation that has been argued about. All stuff Christians have both enjoyed and argued about since the beginning of the church. And all of those things are important and meaningful and worthy of discussion and, and, and a wonderful mystery. Now, I don't know where you find yourself in your own doctrinal positions. And I say those words of election and predestination and all that. And some of you go, yes, finally, here he goes. And others of you are like, oh, don't go there. <laughs> and, and I found myself in thinking on, praying about, chewing on these verses uh, of a quote by E.B. White where he said, explaining a joke, and I think it applies to theology, explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. 
And my personal opinion is that often in theological and doctrinal discussions about that, that's what happens. When we attempt to break everything down into minutia and finer points and we lose the mystery and the awe and the wonder that I think this is meant to invoke, then you just dry it out. It's like an overcooked steak. Um, and I know some of you like that, but it's not the way the Lord intended it. <laughs> and I think when it comes to the doctrine of election and predestination, I heard this from another pastor years ago. It's, it's best understanding the image that I've appreciated the most is that you can imagine it like a door. And on the front of the door, you see the verse, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus said that. On the front of the door, maybe too, you see the, the whosoever of John three sixteen that the God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, anybody, everybody is welcome to come to Jesus. And you see this all-inclusive, Everybody is welcome to follow after Christ. Invitation on the front of the door. And you, you go, okay, I, I believe I want to follow Christ. And you enter through that door of salvation. And on the back of the door, you see John 15, 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Did you choose Jesus or did Jesus choose you? Yes. There's a beautiful mystery there in what Paul says. When he would set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace. And he was pleased in his time and his way to reveal his son to me. Why? in order that I might go and preach to the Gentiles. I think in these discussions, one of the biggest things that is missing around predestination and election is that just about every single time you see it in Scripture, it is connected to mission. It's never given so that Christians could argue and divide and do that, although that's what we've become really, really good at around these issues. Almost every single time throughout Scripture, the calling and election of God for his people is connected to what they are then to do, how they are to live in the midst of the world. In case you don't believe me, I'll give you a couple evidences of that. We'll start in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country to your kindred and to your father's house to the land I will show you. There's God calling him. He, he wasn't seeking after God. God calls him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why did God call Abram? So that the nations in the world might see who God is like and they might be invited to follow after him. 
You fast forward, Jesus comes and fulfills the promises given to Abram and then forms a people called the church. And what are they supposed to be about? Well, a lot of the language that was used for Israel was also used for the church. And you can see one of the key verses is 1 Peter chapter chapter 2, verse 1, uh, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this, but you are a chosen race. This is all language out of Exodus a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Yay! Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what I hope we can see this morning is that, yes, God calls and elects and he chooses, and that is all a beautiful mystery so that those who are called, elected, and chosen might show him in the world. God's work of of saving a people is always connected to the mission that they are supposed to embody and live in the midst of the world. And so whenever you see, again, these big, beautiful doctrines around. It's not for division, it's for worship, and it's for mission. The process for Paul and us in that, yes, takes time. And here's what I love and am curious about this, is that there's a lack of immediacy with Paul in this process. He's saved, and I would think Great. The biggest opponent for the church, let's get the posters made, let's get the uh, tour ready, set up the tent, come see Paul. He can tell you his story. Anybody notice what happened? He goes to the desert for three years. I don't know about you all, but three years, especially when life expectancy then was shorter than it is today, that is a really long time for people to forget about who you are and the great impact and the change and transformation. There's no immediacy here. He goes to the desert, to Arabia. Again, this glimpse into my brain, I'm reading this and keep reading Arabia, and I just go, Arabian nights, <laughs> like Arabian days. It's not for a genie and a lamp and all of that. There's a biblical significance to Arabia. And in Arabia, in case you didn't know, is Mount Sinai, where God gifts the Ten Commandments to Moses. It is in Arabia at Sinai. You can read 1 Kings 19, where Elijah flees from Jezebel. And God reveals to him in that wilderness place the new king, the new prophet, and the remnant that remains that God will use. Paul, it seems, gets time with God to know and understand God, kind of like what we all need, that he takes this time of solitude for clarity and connection away from the noise, away from the opinions, for vision and direction from God. And the bridge between his transformation and mission is silence and solitude and time with God. And it seems he's taking a page out of our Savior's playbook. Luke 5, 15 and 16 says, But now 
Even more, the report about him, this is Jesus, went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. It is the next day that Jesus then sets out and chooses his disciples. I read one book that said that Paul was doing business with God before doing business for God. And then, and this is key, what was revealed to him personally was then confirmed in community. So we have plenty of people that love the idea of silence and solitude and time alone with God, but often that is detached from the calling and confirmation of that in community. Anthony can tell you stories, I can tell you stories of plenty of people who said, God told me, and then tell you the most ridiculous stuff in the world. Anthony's been told, I've been told, God told me to divorce my wife when there was no grounds, reason, or whatever for divorce. In my case, it was one office secretary that this individual liked, and I was like, don't think that's the Lord because there's a big book that says that's a bad idea, and there's a whole community that would also confirm that's a bad idea. And so within this silence and solitude idea, it's not about just getting your personal revelation just for yourself. That's how cults are formed. Anthony talked about that a little bit last week, but it's confirmed within community. After three years, he hangs with Peter for two weeks, sees James, and they go out. And this is in line with what Anthony talked all last week, that everything was tested with and by the community of faith. And this is just, again, a little rabbit trail, a little side, but if a leader or an individual isn't willing to be under authority and invite accountability into their lives, we have ourselves a problem. If or when a leader or an individual is not willing to invite uh, community and accountability into their lives, it's a problem. If you want more on that, we have a membership class after this where you can find out our system and structure around... Was that aggressive? I thought it was a, it was a nice little segue. And then what happened... So, so see the picture. Paul is a persecutor that in and through God's people and prayers is revealed Jesus, is transformed takes time of silence and solitude with God that then is confirmed in community and leads to mission. You, it, it's a, a little all over the place, but you see that thread that I'm trying to put together here? There's persecution, transformation, it leads to mission. You see this in verse 23 and 24. They were hearing his proclaiming Christ, and they said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith once try, he tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Part of Paul's work in bringing Jesus back to center for this church is reminding them how the grand story intersects with his own personal story and then theirs. That's the gospel arc for every human, that God saves and connects the community and sends them out. In case you didn't get the idea yet, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, you see this all working in a condensed form, where Paul writes to the Ephesian church and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. 
not a results of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do you see that connection yet again? It is God who saves, God who sustains. We cannot save ourselves. Why? It's for his glory, and then it's connected to good works in the midst of the world. And so I want to close with a few maybe connection points today, taking this text and seeing how it might relate to our lives today. Number one, the revealing of Jesus is meant to reorient everything. There's a key word that Paul uses twice in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 12 and 16, that Jesus was revealed to him. If you guys want to stuff a fancy Greek word in your back pocket to use at the next cocktail party you're at, adults, not kids, uh, apocalypsis, which we get the English word, Anthony? Apocalypse, very good, very, very good. He went to Calvary Chapel School of Ministry. We get the word apocalypse. It means what was hidden is revealed. It's laid bare. It's manifest. Paul saw King Jesus. And in Jesus, who he really was and really is being revealed to Paul changed everything. This is what he says to the church in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And even in that, I'm thinking verse 21, uh, we, we're his ambassadors. It's in that section where he talks about the cross and reconciliation and new creation so that we can be ambassadors in the midst of the world. But the revealing of Jesus, seeing Jesus for who he really is, is meant to reorient everything. Jesus was never meant to be a trinket that we just hold on the shelf or, you know, put on the rearview mirror or say a prayer from time to time. Jesus is everything and shapes everything and changes everything. And we live life under his good and kind and serious lordship. It's beautifully simple and it's incredibly complex. That everything we do is under that banner of what Jesus says about life. The revealing of Jesus reorients everything. That's not meant to be crushing, but actually captivating for how the church is formed and then moves forward. Second thing, and we've talked about this already, commune with God as you go for God. It's not about, oh, just get some time alone with God and then go about your day separate, but that there's this beautiful communion that God puts us in with him and one another as we go throughout life. As you go through life, remember what Augustine, Augustine, depending, you know, tomato, tomato, I know there's some division in this church, Scott Ritchie's come against me, he's like, stop being pretentious, it's, I'm like, sorry, you're right. St. Augustine, Florida. Then you hear theologians, they're like, Augustine, and you're like, I want to sound smart too. Um, Scott does need to be nice, too. Yeah, yeah. Eliana, was that an amen I heard from you? Anyways, it's Family Roast Sunday. <laughs> Augustine says that God is nearer to me than I am to my very own self. And again, yeah, it's not science. God is nearer to us than we are to our very selves. As we go, he is with us, he is for us. He will never, never leave us or forsake us. Remember that. 
And the reason I, we, you can go broad, church lacks power today is often because our attention is elsewhere. I can trace this in my own personal life. The handful of life-shaping moments that I've had have come in the quiet and then were confirmed in community. That's the story of this church. (laughs) John and Karen want to run away from Prescott in 2019, and we're making all the necessary plans to do so. And Josh Solons takes me out to Method Coffee and says, would you consider and pray about planting another church in Prescott? And I said, no, I won't. Please, fine. <laughs> and, and then we take some time off. We go to the beautiful tropical oasis that is Costa Rica. Anthony and Beth come down to Costa Rica. We talk, we pray, and it seems in community that even though I don't really, really want to, that it's like it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us, and we get a group of elders together, and here we are. It's wild, right? And so we can commune with God as we go for God, and that is all a community project as well. And then third, uh, pay attention to where you're preoccupied and where there's pain points in your life, and turn those into prayer. Again, the the church in the first century could have just gone bitter and resentful and angry against the world that didn't understand it and didn't want it to exist. And aren't you thankful that they didn't? Because here we are. And it's through the prayers and the faithfulness of God's people throughout the ages that we have come to hear about this faith. So as you live in a very frustrating, broken world, it is that because of sin in your own life and other people's lives because of the the pressures and powers of the enemy, don't get bitter. Pray, pray, pray for yourself, for the people around you. Allow the perspective of Christ to shape your outlook on life and people. Again, guys, this world in so many ways stinks royally. And what is happening in our own day and age, it is awful and it's terrifying. But if Jesus really has been revealed and he's really still on the throne, then to quote the rapper Kendrick Lamar, we gonna be all right. (laughs) We are. Because he's with us and he's for us. Then finally, don't get bogged down and lost in the particularities and possibilities of life, but focus on the concrete power, presence, and promises of God. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these other things will be added. And so if you see Jesus, you realize this changes everything. And he he communes with us and he delights to speak to us in his world, in his word. He's changing us and transforming us, and he's given us such good, solid promises and power and his own very presence of which we can build our lives and go with him in it all. And so, friends, would you and would we see Jesus and follow him and worship him? today. Let's pray.
So, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you changed this man we know as Paul and that you used the proclamation of your word then all the way to today to show us Christ, who he is, and how he calls us to live. We thank you that you have called us, that you have set us apart, that you have saved us. And even today we pray that for our kids, for those that have grandkids, Lord, that you would continue that work in their lives. And you would form our church as a part of your larger church to be faithful witnesses to you in the midst of this world. And so continue now as we respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.